April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. Also in sunny Washington, D.C., vicinity. We have Rosa Brooks, probably in Arlington, Virginia, or someplace. I'm in sunny Arlington, Virginia. No, I'm not in Arlington, Virginia. I'm tired. I'm jet lagged, David. I don't know where I am, but I am somewhere. Somewhere in Virginia. Somewhere in Virginia. Yeah, and just just having returned from overseas. Also having returned from overseas, uh, probably in Washington, I don't know, uh, is David Sanger of the New York Times. How are you doing, David? I'm good. I'm going to compare um, jet lag uh, cures with with Rosa having done Hiroshima and back in in uh, too rapid a period of time. Um, yes. Uh, well, you know, there were people who said going to Hiroshima and back for the president was too rapid a period of time, and he should have gone to Papua New Guinea. Um, did were you disappointed you didn't get to go to Papua New Guinea? I was deeply because I was pool for Papua New Guinea, which meant that I would have had the Air Force One ride into Papua New Guinea and and been back there for the first time in 30 years uh, and see the first American president to arrive in the Pacific. And instead, we got on the airplane and landed at Andrews. Well, so first of all, it would have been the only Air Force One ride ever into Papua New Guinea. That would have been pretty cool. That's right. But That's there's right. a bigger question here before we get into the real substance. I'm sure it's the question on Rose's mind. What do you mean it was the first time back in 30 years? Why were you in Papua New Guinea 30 years ago? Because 30 years ago, David, you may recall, I was a correspondent for the New York Times in the Tokyo Bureau. And we did not have a very large number of reporters in Asia the way we do now. And so um, the whole uh, uh, that whole side of the world was my oyster, and I wanted to go to Papua New Guinea. So we came up with stories to do from Papua New Guinea. Um, <laughs> you wanted to go to Papua New Guinea, I say. I went voluntarily. Yeah, no, I... And to the Solomon's Island, Solomon Islands for the 50th anniversary of uh, the battle, at which I got what I thought was the best quote in six years I had in Asia, which was we were waiting around for the guy who rescued John F. Kennedy to paddle in from an outer island to Honiara, which is the capital we had at the time and probably still does, maybe one uh, streetlight. 
and uh, and one stoplight, if if that. And he never showed up. And the foreign minister um, said to us, he hates the big city. <laughs> That's very funny. So what is your readout on the trip to Hiroshima? So it had two or three big parts to it. Um, the overwhelming part that you read the most about was Zelensky showing up. And what you discover now is that when Zelensky shows up at a international meeting, it kind of sucks all the air out of the, the room because, I mean, he's showing up with such dramatic events happening back at home. And there were a lot of people in the room there who were not with him. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi of India, um, Lula was there from Brazil and uh, said that. Yeah, Lula was kind of an asshole. Lula about it, said wasn't it? that they had scheduling difficulties, so they really couldn't get together. I don't know what else there was to do in that room. Yeah, well, I saw a shot of Zelensky coming into the room, and most of the people were shaking hands with him, including Modi. They were being polite. And Lula was sitting at the end of the table with his head down, trying to pretend he wasn't there. That's exactly what happened. Um, Modi was very polite and met separately with Zelensky. I'm not sure that Zelensky persuaded him to get uh, India uh, out of its fence-sitting position, but they had a full conversation. You can't argue that he didn't hear him out. Right. I mean, that's the essence of diplomacy. So that was part one. Part two, we can come back to it later on, was the China part of this was really interesting. It was the first time that the Europeans and the U.S. came up with a common set of principles for dealing with China, considering that China's first mention in a communique of the G7 only happened two years ago. That was pretty significant. And I thought the third really interesting thing was the Chinese overreaction to the entire event, which was denouncing it as a cabal and calling in the Japanese ambassador to demarche him for organizing this group of anti-China players and all that kind of stuff. So um, thought all of that was pretty interesting. Well, it was kind of interesting on the anti-China front because, you know, to some extent they were right. You know, there was the part of the meeting, part of the message was against Chinese economic coercion, um, which is a little rich given what we're trying to do with other countries with regard to China. Uh, and some of it was regarding, you know, strengthening our alliance to counterbalance China and Asia. So both of those things might be seen as a little troubling for them. But, you know, there were subtexts and, and let's talk about this for just a moment. Um, that were somewhat different. And that included President Biden saying that he was looking forward to uh, trying to sort of normalize the relationship a little bit. And um, uh, that coincides with reports I've gotten from a variety of sources that suggest that we may get, in the not-too-distant future, Secretary of State's trip back on track for some time later this year. We may expect a meeting between uh, the president and, and, and President Xi sometime later this year. Uh, and so we may get back to sort of at least where we were pre-balloon. What do you think? So that's certainly the effort. And uh, my colleague Peter Baker and I wrote a fairly lengthy news analysis on this. It uh, was really built around the president's statement during the uh, press conference that he thought that a thaw was coming in relations 
because we were getting past the silly balloon incident where he then went on to describe how they had basically two freight cars, as he said, full of um, of uh, spy equipment that was aboard. It wasn't really a balloon. Um, but you're also um, going to be reading uh, soon and probably will have by the time uh, this is broadcast. Uh, the discovery of a new Chinese cyber group that is um, focusing its attention on U.S. telecommunications services. So the balloon, you have to understand, is not a discrete incident, but part of a much broader Chinese surveillance program. We have surveillance programs, too, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily be too outraged by all of this. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is, you're not going to you're not going to throw the Chinese off from doing what the broader program was in uh, in the surveillance effort around the balloon. I think you'll see those meetings happen in sort of a reverse order. Um, I think you're more likely to see Treasury Secretary Yellen and the Commerce Secretary uh, Gina Raimondo go to China first, then probably Secretary Blinken to try to reschedule the trip that was put off. And then if those work out well, a meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, President Biden. If I had to guess at the G20 meeting in India, that's the only place I can see this year where they're both supposed to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah, and the senior administration officials have in public places said they expected that meeting to happen. Uh, we've heard these other things. This is a kind of, uh, uh, Rosa, David mentioned the use of the, the word thaw. Um, uh, but, you know, I think he also rightly says we need to keep our uh, a balanced perspective. The new Chinese ambassador, uh, who's an old U.S. hand, arrives in uh, Washington in the next few days. I mean, he's arrived in the U.S. already um, and is going to take up the post. And uh, uh, there are even reports on the Chinese side that because he's an America hand, this may also signal a slight thawing. Um, what do you think? Is that a good thing, Rosa? It is a good thing, David. It is definitely a good thing. Um, you know, we are, we're, we've talked about this in the past. We're completely interconnected. Neither side wants a conflict. We, we, we have significant differences with China, obviously. You know, they're adversarial to us in some ways. We're competitors in many ways. Um, but it's absolutely vital that we be able to manage that relationship effectively and not heating up tensions unnecessarily when we don't actually have to is vital to managing that relationship, is vital to letting us solve problems when they occur because they 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 do occur, they are occurring, they will continue to occur. So, David, the other thing you talked about was uh, Zelensky. We've seen a little movement on the Ukraine front in the past few days. Um, and there was some other news on Ukraine that came up at this at this. Uh, a Biden press conference because he talked about a hundred thousand Russian casualties in and around Bakhmut, uh, which, by the measure of any war in history, is gigantic, uh, particularly for a place that doesn't seem to have any strategic uh, significance, and that it increasingly looks like the Russians are going to have a hard time continuing uh, to hold. Would you say the mood around the Zelensky visit there was? Uh, both uh, supportive. They, there was there obviously a decision to give more weapons, including F-16s, 
but also uh, perhaps optimistic? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, the weapons announcement was nothing special. It, uh, If you look now, every two weeks there is a disbursement, and the $350 million that they announced that day uh, is um, – not a lot in the in the realm of what we've been turning over to them. Uh, so it's been a, um, uh, I, I would say that it was a fairly small disbursement, although it diffused the issue of Zelensky asking for more. He now knows, you know, that the shopping list is being acted on. The um, F-16 thing was really fascinating because for months now, the Ukrainians have been saying, we need F-16s, we need F-16s, but they don't need them for Bakhmut. They don't even need them for the counteroffensive that is presumably about to begin. What they need them for is establishing a long-term deterrent to Russia a year from now if they're in a position where they actually have pushed the Russians out of some of the South and the East, and you're moving toward some kind of an armistice agreement, as we've discussed in the past. And I think the administration finally got the message that they ought to be running ahead of these requests instead of looking at every moment like they're being the last ones dragged to it. And so they said, sure, we'll start training people for them. It's going to take a long while to get the F-16s there. They have to strip out critical technology that uh, the uh, U.S. has on some of these planes. They have to teach uh, Ukrainians not only to fly them, but how to maintain them. As one administration official said to me uh, the other day, comparing the the MiGs and old Soviet planes that the Russians have been flying, it's like you've been changing the oil on your old Chevy in the driveway, and suddenly someone pulls up a Maserati, and you have to learn how to tune it up. It's going to take a little while. I realize, David, that would strike you as a Maserati driver. I've never driven a Maserati, although I was behind one in traffic today. Um, but, uh, some of the planes that they are, uh, um, uh, getting, of course, are not going to be U.S. F-16s. They'll be F-16s from, uh, Europe that'll be equipped in a different way. Uh, one thing we've seen, however, uh, Rosa, is that, uh, the U.S. estimates with regard to how long it takes to train the Ukrainians have consistently been wrong. The DOD estimates in particular, uh, we started out with estimates that it would take 18 months to learn, uh, to teach uh, Ukrainian pilots how to fly F-16s. Uh, the most recent estimate was four months or less. Um, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the red lines that we've seemed to have set also seem to have evaporated. How do you, what do you attribute the U.S. Relux, reluctance to part with some of these weapon systems to? We might need them ourselves at some point. I think that's part of it. You know, that one of the things that obviously this has revealed, can you all hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, one of the things that this has revealed, um, uh, the war in Ukraine has revealed, is that we're not as good as we should be at being able to manufacture things quickly, move things quickly, and so on. And, and I, you know, you would have thought that was a lesson that we would have learned over the last 20 years of, of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it, it became clear that we still haven't learned it. So I, I think part of it is a little bit of anxiety about, you know, hey, um, you know, what if what if we need all these, what if we need all this equipment? What if we need these people, 
you know, are we, are we potentially endangering ourselves? But, but I, you know, I think the other thing is, is that our, from the very beginning, we've had, uh, I think, an understandable anxiety about pushing beyond Russian red lines and triggering a broader conflict, triggering a direct military conflict with Russia, potentially, <clears throat> potentially triggering a nuclear conflict. And that's what we've been, you know, we've been wrestling with this the whole time of how do we, you know, if you don't deter them enough, then maybe they think they can get away with anything, including that if you if you sort of are overly aggressive, then maybe you push them to doing things you don't want them to do. So we're, we're we've been we've been struggling with that from the beginning, and and obviously we're we're recalculating on all of that stuff just constantly. You know, every day we're we're recalculating. So I don't think it's particularly surprising that our calculations change based on what Russia is doing, what Ukraine is doing, what China is doing. You know, how likely it is we think, you know, how likely we assess other countries. Uh, reactions in support of us to be, how likely we assess uh, other countries' reactions in opposition to us to be. So I, I, I don't find it at all surprising that we have not been terribly consistent. In terms of the, the training time, I think, you know, part of it is that the Ukrainians proved to be very quick learners. And part of it is that the Pentagon has a little bit of a vested interest to, you know, uh, under promise. Uh, you know, it's always better to under promise and overperform than the other way around. And they've learned that lesson very well apparently in the last 20 years of war and they're, they're doing that again. And then they get to say, Oh, well, look, it went better than we thought. David, a quick, a quick point on, on Rose's very good point. This is a very different war than the kind that we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we have learned as Rosa pointed out that our production rates for standard ammunition are, you know, have sort of fallen back on the theory that we'd never really be using this stuff except in training. So, for example, if the Ukrainians were using the HIMARS system, the precision missile system, fully, they'd be going through 75,000 to 100,000 rounds in the course of a year. And by the best I can take, I can figure out, and I'm sure some listener will correct me if I'm wrong here, I think we're now we manufacture 4,800 a year. So um, you can that seems that seems inadequate. Yeah, somewhat. Um, so uh, so part of what this has done is triggered a real rethinking of what we need, not only for our own needs, but if, you know, uh, you had other allies who got into a significant conflict. Imagine if you had Ukraine and Taiwan going on at the same time. Well, it used to be that we would say we could fight two theater wars simultaneously. What is apparent from this is we could not support two allies fighting separate small wars simultaneously. And there's some question about the degree to which we can support one. Well, yeah, no, it's been a, it's been eye opening. But you know, Rosa's point on this was, uh, uh, you know, was all, the other point she made was also pertinent, which is. We want to save some of these things for ourselves. I've heard reg re regarding the longer range missiles, the attackums, uh, not only that was there a Russian red line set at 300 kilometer range or something, but that the U.S. Defense Department was like, well, hey, we might need those. Don't, let's not give them up. Is that what you're hearing, David? Yep, absolutely. And, you know, uh, look, the Pentagon's first role is to plan for every eventuality every conflict we could possibly get into. I'm sure there's a file in there someplace about war with Canada, right? Uh, but um, 
I'm not suggesting, by the way, to any of our listeners that we are headed to any kind of conflict with our Canadian friends. Um, so South South Park, notwithstanding. That's right. Um, so the uh, the only issue that um, that you see here is they then look and say, what are they do a a line to go figure out what kind of ammunition you would need to feed every one of those contingencies. And if you have enough contingencies, obviously you're going to have much bigger demands. And, you know, that's the decision in the end that the president's going to have to make, which is what risk are you willing to take domestically in order to make sure that the Ukrainians either win here or at least make a strong enough um, showing in the uh, in the counteroffensive. So, Rosa, the president went because he felt he had to uh, advance big national priorities that included China issue, Ukraine issue, but also sort of showing our face with our allies as we sort of tango around this idea of debt default. Um, In retrospect, do you think they handled it right by going? I think so. I I absolutely think so. I I don't, I don't really think there was any other choice. I mean, I, I think that, I think that the the global consequences of any kind of U.S. debt default would be as devastating as the domestic consequences. And showing up to say we're going to figure this out, we're still here. Don't don't start giving up on us. You know, I, I think he had to do that. Do, do do you still worry about how our allies may react to this debt drama? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we're fortunate. In that our allies um, cut us some slack. They they've seen us dance this particular dance before uh, and get very very close to all kinds of financial catastrophe and then somehow manage to step away from the brink at the very last minute. I think they I think they therefore assume we're going to do it again. Um, and I I hope to God they're right. Um, so I think, I think it makes them very nervous. I think it's part of their broader anxiety about the extremely divided U.S. political system, which has rendered U.S. actions and policies far less predictable than they were, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, so, so I think it's a source of anxiety for them, but not to the point that they think we're about to have a total crisis. I, you know, I think they'd be behaving quite differently if they truly thought we were about to bring down the entire global economy. No, that's a, that's a good point. Okay, so this is the point in the program where we say to all of you who are not members, thanks for joining us. We've uh, hoped you've enjoyed the show, and we hope that your curiosity in hearing what the rest of this show and the rest of all our other shows uh, uh, have in store will lead you to go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member. Uh, it's only $5 a month, and uh, uh, it, we have a expanded and expanding lineup of shows. So that means much more bonus content for members um, uh, uh, and super high quality experts on key issues. So we hope you will join us for that. For now, if you're in the general public, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with you soon. If you're a member, stand by.